Thank you, worship team. Bill, that wasn't bad for being a fill-in guy. couple of announcements. Uh, many of you have been praying for Alan Anderson, and I think he's doing well. I talked to Paulette last night, and he had kind of a difficult day yesterday, but he's doing better. And he said, overall, a good trajectory this weekend since his surgery. So thank you for praying. And I know Paulette and Alan both appreciate that. Sandy and I were able to visit them on Friday night, and Alan was looking remarkably well after a major heart surgery. So Keep praying and uh, pre keep praying for his recovery and for God's grace. Um, second announcement, um, Caleb and I have, have been asked to travel to Romania to our sister church, kind of a short notice thing. So uh, October 22nd, we're, Caleb and I are leaving for a visit to Romania. And um, I won't go into all the details right now, but we've been asked to speak at a conference over there. And... Um, Come to Sunday school next hour and we'll give you a little more detail about what that looks like. Um, I, can I give a little commentary on the news before we get started this morning? I've been trying to figure out how to write this out and it's not coming to me, so I thought, well, I'll just get in front of a whole bunch of people and wing it and see how that works. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see. Um, I've made an observation it's, it's not rocket science political correctness offers no forgiveness have you seen that? political correctness only knows a big hammer a pointing finger and nothing but judgment and condemnation I, uh, I am so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that nobody goes through my yearbook and judges my whole life on it. I'm glad that nobody goes back 36 years and says, you're a scumbag. Because there's lots of evidence there to prove that I am. But I think as, as followers of Christ, we need to first look at the forgiveness that Christ offers and rejoice in the second chance that he gives. It's only found in him. The, the world and the culture and our political correctness only brings judgment and condemnation. That's all it brings. And if you're on, if, if, if you're, we're looking at the news this week, if you're on the other side of that coin and, and receiving bad treatment or the victim of something, there's no place to go for hope. Maybe psychology. Maybe. Maybe there's some, some small places you can go for hope and a future. But Jesus Christ offers a hope and a future for you too if, if, if life has run you over. And you don't have to hold on to it for 36 years. You can live a new life. You can live in freedom. And the other thing that I realize about the gospel when we look at our headlines of the day is that the gospel offers you um, a forgiveness in the depths of your heart. You see, 
left to ourselves, and I think most of us can attest to this, left to ourselves, forgiveness does not come easy. Left to ourselves, in, in fact, we would much rather stand on revenge and pointing the finger and making sure that that other person that ran me over looks really bad. And even as followers of Christ, we're, we're really good at that. But the gospel calls us to a higher standard. Today we're going to, going to talk about costly grace. The gospel calls you to walk in the power of Jesus Christ, and, and it's not easy. And one of the first things that the costly grace will ask of you is to walk in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and that means extending and receiving forgiveness. It is our human nature to dwell on the crime, to the, to the injustice. But the gospel calls us to seek Jesus Christ and to seek his forgiveness, whether it's receiving or giving. And I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others over and over and over again. Forgiveness is a key issue. Political correctness offers no forgiveness. They only offer judgment and a big hammer. Only in Jesus Christ can you find life and forgiveness in a future. That's my commentary on the news this week. There's probably more that you have for the news this week, but we'll leave it at that. Political correctness is a dead-end street. I could, I'd, I'd also add in there truth. Political correctness will never get you to truth. It never will. Okay. Okay, that's my soapbox. Pardon me? <laughs> All right. In his book, Loving God, uh, by Chuck Colson, it came out years ago. I don't remember. Was it in the 80s that he wrote Loving God? Uh, fabulous book. If you've not read it, it's a classic, and uh, I would I'd highly commend it to you was very formative in my life uh, in, in those years. An excellent book on what it means to walk in, in obedience to Jesus Christ. And Chuck Colson's story is remarkable all by itself. But inside the book, in one of the chapters, Chuck Colson talks about a guy by the name of um, Mickey Cohen. And he goes on to describe, it takes a whole chapter to describe this story of Mickey Cohen, but uh, I'm going to try to condense it if I can this morning. Mickey Cohen was a figure in the 1940s in Los Angeles, and he was larger than life. Movie stars, movie moguls, blockbuster movies, organized crime, glamour, fame, power, that all made up the 1940s in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. Now, Mickey Cohen was, a, was an unassuming guy. It was, he, just, he didn't stand out in the crowd. But Mickey Cohen grew up on the, on the East Coast in New York and New Jersey, and he learned the ways of organized crime. Mickey Cohen grew up being a gangster. And so somewhere in this story, Cohen moved to Los Angeles, and he began writing his own story as a gangster in Los Angeles. And it didn't take him long until he was, he was the guy in Los Angeles. It, it, soon, everything that happened in L.A. first went through Mickey Cohen. Gambling, crime, violence, bribery of public officials, that was just part of his life. Everyone bowed the knee to Mickey Cohen. When he walked into a nightclub, all the starlets, all the movie stars, all the, all the names, 
they even, people would stop their comedy act or their music act just to watch Mickey Cohen walk into the restaurant. And they would all come and, 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 and want to get in line to talk to Mickey Cohen, this unassuming guy who was the gangster of L.A. He had a beautiful home. He had a glamorous wife. He had a business that netted a half a million dollars a day in the 1940s. That's how powerful he was. He got into a little bit of trouble and he went to, had to go to court to face a charge. I don't remember the, the story is too long to go into it, but he was facing a charge. It was a violent crime and uh, he got off. He was found not guilty. Soon after one of the not guilty verdict, one of his employees called him on the phone. That, well, that's a, that's a mistake. Nobody ever calls Mickey Cohen on the phone. You never seek a direct audience with Mickey Cohen. You go through all the channels. But his phone rang, and it was one of his employees. His employee, this guy's name was Jim Voss. Now, Jim Voss, was, he worked for Mickey Cohen in, in, the, in the crime syndicate, and he was an electronics wizard. Back in those days, if you needed a phone tapped, if you needed illegal funds transferred, if you needed some sort of a betting scheme rigged, if you needed anything like that, Jim Voss was your guy. Any kind of electronic crime, and Jim Voss would do it for you. So it was a rather bold move for him to call Mickey Cohen directly, to call his boss directly, and he took a step further, and he invited him over to his house for dinner. So Mickey Cohen accepted the invitation and came to his house for dinner. And at that dinner that evening, Jim Voss and his wife explained to Mickey Cohen that they had just gone to the Los Angeles Crusades of Billy Graham. And he went on to explain what he heard Billy Graham talk about, the, the, the gospel as Billy Graham presented it. And he went on to explain to Mickey Cohen, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. I have given my life to Jesus Christ. So Cohen didn't understand what that meant. Cohen was a, a nice Jewish guy, but, and, and so he didn't understand what this whole gospel talk was about. But, but he was supportive of Voss regardless. But then Jim Voss went on to explain that it meant he was giving up everything. That his decision to follow Christ meant a radical change in the direction of his life. He was going to give up organized crime. And he asked Mickey Cohen to release him from his job. Even that week, Jim Voss was, was set to fly to St. Louis to rig a horse betting scheme that brought in tons of money for Mickey Cohen. But Voss was walking away. In the crime world, that's called a double cross. You don't just walk away from organized crime. Mickey Cohen, in, in all of the gangster mentality that he had, in all the violence of his heart, he had a streak of generosity in him. And out of that goodness of his heart, that little piece of, heart, of his heart that was, that was generous and good, Cohen released Voss from his job. He said, that's okay. You can go. That just doesn't happen. But other contacts in the crime world were not so generous. He was supposed to go to St. Louis that week, as I mentioned, and he let the boys in St. Louis know that he was not coming to rig the gambling scheme. They weren't as excited as Mickey Cohen was. And they said, well, if you're not coming to St. Louis, we're coming for you. 
and he knew exactly what that meant. So sometime later, in the next day or two, two thugs showed up on his front lawn. Boss knew that they had come either to maim him for life or to take his life. So for 45 minutes, Voss stood on the front porch of his house and he explained what happened at the Billy Graham crusade. And he explained to these two thugs that had come to, to, to beat him within an inch of his life, he explained to them what the power of Jesus Christ meant in his life. That he was transformed, that he was going a new direction, that he was renouncing everything for the sake of Christ. After 45 minutes, the two thugs turned around and left. Eventually, and as the story goes, and I, I don't remember all the details, it's, you, can, you can read it in, in Colson's book, but eventually Cohen would be caught by the feds in financial corruption. So he was sent to prison for a number of years, and after his release, the once famous, wealthy, and powerful figure had nothing. Jim Voss actually gave him a loan to buy a car. He had nothing. Another man, Bill Jones, another Christian whose life was radically transformed by the gospel, began mentoring Cohen, and he began to share Christ with him. His post-prison day, in his post-prison days, Cohen began to speak to charity groups. He began to raise money for charity groups. He even went to boys' homes and began to tell boys that a life of crime was not worth it and began working with charities in that way. He was having a change of heart. And so Jones began, saw this generosity in his heart, and he began to explain the gospel to Cohen. And in one particular setting, he, he explained him Revelation 3.20, where Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. And Jones explained to Cohen, you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ. You need to take a step of faith. And Cohen agreed to it. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right. I see it. I, I get the idea. And, and Jones said, no, you have to take an action. You can't simply agree to faith. You can't just say, oh, this, this is wonderful. And, and yeah, I buy that. And walk away. You need to look straight into the gospel. You have to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And you have to let the power of the gospel transform your life. Mickey, you got to make a decision. And Mickey, if you're going to leave, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, it means you have to leave everything. It means you have to change your life. It means repentance means a change of mind, a change of direction. That's what it means. You've got to make a decision. And to his surprise that night, Cohen made a decision for Jesus Christ. And over time, Jones, and I think Jim Voss was in on this as well, began to disciple Mickey Cohen. Over a period of time, Jones saw that there was a greater need for discipleship, one that he couldn't meet, and he thought, well, you know what? I'm going to take him to see Billy Graham again. And so they, they flew out to New York City where Graham was having his crusade, and um, Cohen loved the idea. He loved the idea of being around famous people. He loved the idea of being around people that, especially this guy that was leading crusades and leading lots of people to Christ. And he wanted to meet this guy and he just thought this was really something. And maybe I can go and maybe I can get my picture taken with this guy. That was his idea. And so they wound up in New York and he wound up visiting with, with Billy Graham. And I won't go into it all, but they had a remarkable meeting and 
They returned to Los Angeles together. But to the dismay of both Voss and Jones, Cohen began running in the circles of organized crime again. He stopped calling them, and he stopped meeting with them. Eventually, Jones confronted Cohen with the contradiction of his profession of faith and his life in organized crime. He said, you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't follow Christ and live the way you're living. And Cohen turned to him, and he replied that day, Jones, you never told me I had to give up my career. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars. There's Christian athletes. There's Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? What's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all of that, if that's Christianity, then count me out. Isn't that an amazing story? Why can't I be a Christian gangster? When Jesus sat on the hillside that day early in his ministry, he was teaching his disciples the cost of discipleship. In fact, at the end of the sermon, Jesus summarizes life in the kingdom with several illustrations, and I call to Matthew 7, verse 14. He says, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Or chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, there's a cost to discipleship. Bonhoeffer, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, talks about cheap grace and costly grace. I think you have it on the screen. He says this, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace. If you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he was in Nazi Germany and he stood up against the Nazi war machine and, and um, part of the underground church I don't have a quote for you, but he, he estimated, he, this was his, his assessment of the church in Germany at the time, and he said it's cheap grace that led the, the German church to capitulate to Nazism. Hitler had his way with the church because we didn't understand the gospel, because we had bought in to cheap grace. And on the other hand, Bonhoeffer goes on to explain costly grace. He says it this way, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door which a man must knock, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life.
but he delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Those are powerful words. So it's a foundational truth of the gospel. We must fall to our knees before we can be lifted up. We must die to ourselves before we can be raised to new life. We must come to the end of ourselves before we can live in the fullness of Christ. We must pursue Christ who has pursued us even in our sin. It's no happenstance that the order, that the Beatitudes are ordered in the way they are. Each of the truths that Jesus proclaimed in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, build on one another. It's not a rambling thought that Jesus just put together in front of his disciples. He laid out the gospel for them to understand what it means to, to follow after him, what it means to, for, for them to live life in the kingdom of God. What does kingdom life look like? What does following Jesus Christ look like? What does it mean to walk in this repentance that Jesus is calling for? What does it mean when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? What does it mean that you are a citizen of the kingdom? And so the entire balance of the Sermon on the Mount is based on this first principle that we'll look at today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We dare not miss this truth like Mickey Cohen did so many years ago. Those who hear the shepherd's voice will follow him into the depths of this important truth. So let's look at it today. And I pray that this truth transforms our lives, captures our imagination, and causes us to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, yes, I will follow after you. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5. By the time we're done over the next few weeks and months, I think your Bible will just flip open to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 automatically. I'll just start at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's just walk through this word by word, thought by thought, and let, let the word speak to us this morning. Let's start with blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I looked at several versions of scripture, several translations of scripture, and I didn't find any that used the word happy in the place of blessed. The closest that came was the New Living Translation. But they all say blessed. But a literal translation of this word blessed or blessed refers to a happy condition. It can also mean fortunate. Fortunate is the one. Happy is the one. But I think by what I'm, what I'm studying, what I'm seeing is that happy seems to be the more accurate version, more accurate understanding. Happy are the poor in spirit. In fact, the Septuagint, the, the, the version of the, the Hebrew scriptures, say, say it like this. Oh, the happiness of... That's how this, the Hebrew scriptures would say this New Testament passage. Oh, the happiness of the poor in spirit. The idea of a blessed or happy is not like the happy that the world has to offer us. 
the basic idea of happy can be subjective. It can be, it can be even be fickle. It, it, the, the idea of happy is, happiness is, it, it, it comes and goes. And often without our control. <coughs> happiness, the way we think of it, is elusive and conditional. But this kind of happy, in Matthew 5, verse 3, this kind of happy or blessed is something that's much more profound. It's a spiritual state. It's an eternal state of joy and satisfaction. This kind of happiness, this kind of blessedness is something that is God-given. To be blessed in the Sermon on the Mount, this this idea of blessing, to be blessed, (coughs) to be called blessed, means to walk in in the favor of God. It means to enjoy his approval. It means to walk in the fullness of God and walk in the satisfaction of God. Unlike happiness, it's not dependent on circumstances. Max Lucado has said it like this. Blessedness, this happiness means, wait, wait for it, the applause of heaven. Isn't that a great way to see it? It means that God's favor rests on you. It means that God is, God, is, God is enjoying your presence. God is enjoying your fellowship. God is enjoying the way that you're walking in him. And God's face is turned towards you. Max Lucado calls it the applause of heaven. I've been to two funerals in the last couple of weeks. And in both cases, in the midst of tremendous sorrow and grief, there was an underlying confidence and assurance that God was walking through them during that day and those circumstances. There was a tremendous confidence and assurance that he was fulfilling his promises to them that day. There was tremendous confidence and assurance that his peace, that he promised, would would go beyond anything we could ever imagine, would be with them in those moments of absolute sorrow. That's, That's that river that runs through our heart knowing that we have turned towards God in our day of difficulty, knowing that we have turned towards God in that difficult decision, knowing that we have chosen the cost of discipleship over the ease and comfort of of life as the world offers it. That is knowing that I am walking in the fullness of God. That is knowing that even if the circumstances are difficult and even if the, the answer doesn't make any sense for the moment, I know that I'm walking in the ways of the Lord. That's the river that runs through us. That's the, that's the blessedness that Jesus is talking about. You are walking in the favor of God. You are walking in the applause of heaven. And they're saying, at a boy, at a girl, way to go. Blessed. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those. And we can't drive past this idea too fast. I want you to remember that Matthew opens up his narrative of this sermon by saying that Jesus saw the crowds. We talked about that last week. And then the disciples came to him and they sat at his feet. And, and so as, as we look at this, we have to remember that Jesus is sitting on the hillside and he's seeing two things. He's seeing his disciples at his feet and he's looking out at the crowds. sees the disciples and and they're the ones who left everything for the sake of following him. But the crowd consisted of onlookers, curiosity seekers, Mickey Cohen's, 
Some of them would take a step of faith and move towards Jesus, and others, many of them, would eventually fall away. So the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, are, are like, a, a, like a, a laser beam assessment, evaluation, look into our hearts. Where are you? What is your standing in the kingdom? Are you one who has chosen to follow after Jesus? Or are you looking from the crowd in? Are we truly followers of Christ or are we just curiosity seekers? Do we just show up on Sunday but we don't really yield our lives to Christ and his kingdom? Jesus said, blessed are those who are in Christ Jesus. So this teaching is directed at those who have left everything. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And now we're getting to the heart of the truth. The character trait of poor in spirit is the doorway into blessedness. So what does it mean, poor in spirit? A word study of, uh, on the, of this word, poor, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, indeed points to the idea of poverty. It points to the idea of, of beggars. It points to the ideas of those who have no resources, those who have nothing to offer themselves, cannot support themselves, those who are reaching out and saying, please, can you help me? Those who are looking for an outside source for their support. The Greek word for poor actually comes from a, a, a root word that says, that means to cower and cringe like a beggar. Simply stated as someone who has no resources and is unafraid to beg for help. That's the idea of poor. And then when you add the idea of spirit to it, you come up with the idea that someone is absolutely poverty-stricken spiritually. Someone who knows that they bring nothing to the table spiritually. Someone who knows that they are bankrupted by sin and that they are helpless to help themselves. That they are totally dependent on God for their every need. That's poor in spirit. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 51. Let's, let's get an idea of this. Familiar passage for us, Psalm 51. But I, wanna, I would like to emphasize that even in the Old Testament, this idea, uh, even with the people of Israel, God is looking for those who are broken in spirit and contrite of heart. Look at this. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's the person who is poor in spirit, who recognizes their own poverty, that sin has devastated their lives and that they have nothing to offer God. In fact, God is correct in his assessment of their life that they need a Savior. And then look down to verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then if you turn over to Psalm 34, we see it again. Uh, I'm looking at verse 18, but look at verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and deliver them, and delivers them. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. There it is. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 57. Look at verse 15. For thus, uh, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell on the high, in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That is who God is looking for. Psalm 66, one more, one more verse. Psalm 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is poor in spirit. That's what God is looking for in our heart. That's what, that's what this beatitude calls for as a characteristic of our hearts. Poor in spirit. So what, what, what isn't poor in spirit? What doesn't it mean? It doesn't mean an absence of self-worth. It doesn't mean that I have no value or significance. Scripture reminds me that I have been bought with a price, that we have tremendous in value and significance in, in the eyes of God. Neither does it mean timidity. Neither does it mean shyness. Neither does it mean a lack of enthusiasm or life. Neither does it mean that we are to brag about our humility. I had a teacher in high school who I respected very much. Everyone respected very much, but, but he, always, he was always bragging about how he gave things away to people. And he was always bragging about how humble he was. That's not poor in spirit. I think if you're bragging about how humble you are, it kind of cancels each other out, doesn't it? Help me out here. Somebody say yes. It's not any of those things. Brothers and sisters, we are not worms. We are children of the king. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are citizens of heaven. But poor in spirit means that we recognize our own inability before the Lord. Poor in spirit means that I recognize that I have a lack of resources. Poor in spirit means, as the Apostle Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Poor in spirit means that I'm just, I'm just trapped here and I understand my need for a Savior. And I understand that my power, my strength, my forgiveness, my grace, the, my, the love that God has for me, it all comes from God. If it was a scale, it would all be weighted towards God. I have nothing to put on the scale. That's poor in spirit. It does not mean that I'm a worm, despite what some people may think. I want you to hear that this morning. In my poverty, I am rich in Jesus Christ. And then I'm back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. 
We go on, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for. I'm just going to stop very briefly on the word for. In tandem with our identity in Christ, in tandem with all the things that we just talked about, about being poor in spirit, is our inheritance. Most translations say, and mine does too, my English Standard Version says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it actually could read, and probably should read, Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, if we are in Christ Jesus, we already belong to the kingdom. We're already walking in the kingdom. (coughs) It's true that the kingdom has a future tense. In fact, much throughout the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, many times when we see the word blessed or when we talk about kingdom, it has a future tense. So we can't minimize that. That's, That's probably the larger idea. But it also means that I'm a part of the kingdom. I'm a citizen of the kingdom right now. The moment Jesus Christ becomes my Lord and my Savior, I have water here, John. Thank you. The moment I give my life to Jesus Christ, I become a member of his kingdom. We are blessed because... We have the kingdom because we have the promise of an inheritance. Let's go farther. For theirs, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Those who are marked by this poverty of spirit are promised the kingdom of heaven. So there's there's this confusion. And if you read the commentaries and if you read everybody who's writing on the Beatitudes, there's just lots of different understandings of what the kingdom is and what it means. Some say it's now, most people say it's later, and everybody wants to define it, but I wonder if it's, not, if it's not both. Maybe I'm just taking the easy road. For Israel, they looked forward to the promised land. They looked forward to the kingdom that their Messiah would someday establish. It was a forward look. They understood that they had this inheritance in their futures. For us as Christians, we look forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when he will reign with perfect judgment and perfect, perfect rule over all the earth and over all of creation. And then we look ahead to, to his kingdom being established in eternity as well. But listen to this. Jesus, Jesus taught his disciples to pray in that Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount. He included the instruction to pray for what? Help me out. With the kingdom. What did Jesus instruct his disciples to pray for the kingdom? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you bring your kingdom down? That's a now. When we pray thy kingdom come, it means I'm walking in the kingdom. It means I'm thirsty and hungry for more of his kingdom and his righteousness to be seen all around me beginning in my own life, beginning in my family, beginning in my marriage, beginning with be, and working its way out into my work, my job, my school, and my circumstances. I want the kingdom of God to be revealed. I want the righteousness of God to be revealed in me now. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Present tense, future tense. So we are called to be ambassadors to the world for God's kingdom. We're also to seek God's kingdom in all of our circumstances. And part of God's plan for redemption of creation is the proclamation of the gospel and the calling down of his kingdom to our world. 
we will not accomplish it in our lifetime. It will not be accomplished until the feet of Jesus stand in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And he will come and he will establish his kingdom and his millennial reign. But until then, we're, to, we're called to move about in this world in a way that calls down the kingdom of God. And the, and the doorway to that, the, the premise of that, the foundation of that is the brokenness of spirit. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Those who are poor in spirit, because the kingdom is theirs, for the kingdom is theirs. If you want to see the kingdom operate in your life, if you want to see the kingdom come into your world, into your circumstances, the way you do that is to fall to your knees and say, Lord, I have nothing to offer. I put myself at your feet, at your will, at your disposal. I humbly obey and I, 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 I decide today to follow you in all things. That's the doorway if you want to experience the kingdom. And to that end, to that end, we see in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are given the Holy Spirit when Jesus Christ comes into our hearts. The Holy Spirit is given as a deposit for the inheritance of that which is yet to come. He is given that we might live in the power of Christ and in his kingdom today. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in the reality of all that God has for us today. To walk in his kingdom. And the whole thing is premised on this beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. No one enjoys the kingdom without this brokenness. That's our trait. So life application. I've, I've gone over this before, so we won't go over this today, this morning, but I'd like to show you a, a, the one-verse evangelism that I like to use when I'm sharing the gospel. If you could go to the next slide, please. There it is. So this is one of my sheets I took a picture of. And you can do this on a napkin, and it, it simply goes through Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as you walk through this presentation of the gospel, you simply say on the left side, it's, it's wages, sin, and death. That's what Paul is talking about. This is the world that we live in as before we come to know Jesus Christ, Right? In this we once lived, in this, in this nature we once walked ourselves, Paul says. But then you go through the gospel and you go through the verse and you come to the other side and it says the free gift, the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But I want you, I, the reason I point this out this morning is because that's where we live. If you are in Christ Jesus, you live on the right side. And what is that right side? It's the kingdom of God. Okay. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize the left side, recognize the issues of wages and sin and death, recognize their need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid the penalty of their sin and have moved by his grace into eternal life with Jesus Christ and now live in his kingdom. But it comes with that poor in spirit, that brokenness of spirit. That's how you get there. And so in this case, uh, much of what, Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes is four disciples who are already in the kingdom. But he begins with the Beatitude, a truth, a principle that is the doorway to the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who have renounced it all, who have given up on themselves, realize I have no resources left to offer, and I choose Jesus. And when that happens, you move immediately, that moment, that second, into the kingdom of God. In the story of Mickey Cohen, we saw how Jim Voss turned from a life of sin and organized crime to faith in Christ. What I didn't tell you about Jim Voss is that he renounced it all. Not only did he tell his boss he was leaving, not only did he tell all the other syndicate bosses, I'm done, don't call me anymore, but he decided to make restitution to all those people that he had, that he had uh, defrauded. He went back over his entire career and went back to everybody that he took money from and he determined to pay it all back. He sold his house. He sold his car. And when, when Mickey Cohen heard that Jim Voss had sold his car, he called him up and he said, what do you, I, let me give you some money. You can go buy a car. You got to have a car. And Jim Voss said, no, it's more important that I pay restitution and I can't take money that's been won by organized crime. There's lots of buses and taxis here in L.A. You see, Jim Voss understood repentance. He understood poor in spirit. He understood costly grace. And he said, I'm walking away from the life that I lived before Christ. And I'm turning towards Jesus. That's what God is calling us to be about. At Celebrate Recovery, we've, we've looked at what it means to arrive at this poverty of spirit. The question was asked, who, what do you have control over? And the answer, as our group discussed it, is, is well, I, have, I, I don't have control over anything. I mean, think about it. My, I don't have control over whether my wife stays with me or not. I have no control over whether my wife loves me or not. I have no, no control over whether my kids obey me or not. I have no control over whether my, what decisions my kids make. My kids have no, no control over what decisions their teachers make. My, I have no, no, no control over what, what my boss decides. If he decides to fire me tomorrow, I have no control over that. I have no control over anything except maybe my response and my attitude. Other than that, I have no control over circumstances in my life. Yes, I can manipulate. Yes, I can, I can, I can walk in integrity and all that stuff. I can do that, and we should do that. But at the end of the day, I don't control it. Even my reputation. Even my reputation, I can't control it against words that are thrown at me, against accusations that are thrown at me. I can't control that. I, can't, I can work hard, and we should work hard to, to maintain a reputation. The scriptures tell us that we should, we should walk with integrity for the sake of the gospel. But the bottom line is, I don't even control that. My reputation can be thrown over with just a word, just an accusation. Poor in spirit recognizes that we are absolutely dependent on God for everything. Just imagine what would happen if this poverty of spirit prevailed around us if this kind of utter dependence on God would mark all of our lives. That's what Jesus is calling us to. What if our only goal was to live by this poverty of spirit and to live by the characteristics of the kingdom? What if we only lived for the applause of heaven? What if? What would happen in our marriages if we just let down our God, if we let down our defenses and we recognize that we need to listen to the Holy Spirit in our marriages? What would happen if we depended on God to teach us how to love our spouse, how to be patient with one another? What if husbands recognized the call of Jesus Christ to love their wives as Christ loved the church? What if we called on God to show us how to do that? Born spirit.
What if in our families, what if everyone in our families, from the youngest child to the, to the mom or the dad, what if everybody in our family sought the blessing of the Lord instead of our own agendas? What if we were more concerned about seeing God's wisdom, God's strength, and God's joy in our family, in our family relationships, than in living for ourselves? What if? In the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us where the blessing lies, where the fullness of his, of, of his life comes from, where the fullness of life in his kingdom comes from. And it starts with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There it is. That's the first step. And so I feel like we need to understand that there's an invitation in this. I'm, I'm asking us this morning, do we really want God's approval? It could be this morning, you're, you're, you're satisfied. You're, you're, you're simply satisfied with managing the affairs of your own life and calling on him only when it's convenient or only when times get desperate. Do we really want God's approval? Our salvation depends on this brokenness of spirit. Our sanctification, our growing in Christ, our maturity in Christ is founded on this attitude of repentance and brokenness. And, and that's why Bonhoeffer in his definition of cost of grace said it, it's something that we seek over and over and over and over again. Because I need this every day. That, that, that richness of spirit will, will spring up at a moment's notice. And I have to, by the, call, by the power of the Spirit, call on it to go back in its place and seek instead the poverty of the Spirit. Isn't it time today to give up your life to Jesus Christ? Psalm 46 says, cease striving and know that I'm God. Isn't it time to give it up? I don't know what you're facing today. But I call on you this morning to heed the words of Jesus. To give it up and to walk in the poverty of spirit that he calls us to be about. And walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. And I ask you this morning, will you follow the example of Mickey Cohen or Jim Voss?